All right. Well, guys, we have two more of these classes before we break for July. So as a helpful reminder, we break from extracurricular activities, including theological equipping class, in the months of July and December. So uh, we have this lesson and then one more lesson next week, and then we will break uh, for July. And when we come back in the new semester, we will be doing eschatology. We will be doing end-time stuff the right way, okay? So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, not the weird, you know, hanging Israeli flags, pictures of burning tanks in the background, but a way that would have made sense to the original biblical authors. And so uh, that's what we'll be doing next semester. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, but we've got two more lessons in our study this semester on ecclesiology, okay? Ecclesiology is the study or the doctrine of the ecclesia, the church. And so we've talked about everything from church government to baptism to communion to uh, church offices to church officers, all these different kinds of things. And so we've got two more lessons. And today we're going to be talking about church evangelism. Now let me explain what this is and is not. This is not going to be a class on personal evangelism, okay? How to share the gospel with a Muslim, how to share the gospel with an atheist, how to do that kind of stuff. That's helpful, that's valuable. That's just not what we're doing today because we're studying the doctrine of the church. So today my hope is for us to to better understand evangelism from a uh, kind of church-wide perspective, okay, from a church-wide perspective. Now, sometimes these classes get very heady and very intellectual, and we're using words like ontology and these kind of things. Thankfully today, though, this, uh, this is going to be very practical, uh, and so uh, I hope you enjoy. If I say anything that sounds crazy, just remember, I'm crazy, so that's what's going to happen. Okay, so a few things. Let's talk about what is the gospel, Okay? The first thing you have to know about church evangelism is what message do we share? We believe a lot of things as historic, orthodox, biblical Christians, but there are some things that are more important than others, and what stands at the center of our faith is who God is as the Trinitarian God, and what is the message of salvation? What is the good news, the gospel? And so here's a definition that we've used several times here at Parkway, and I think this is a uh, very helpful definition, but here's the definition. The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin-scarred world, the world that has become corrupted through sin, the sin-scarred world, back to rights by reestablishing his rule and reign, i.e. his kingdom, over the world through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of his eternal son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit with the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace through faith unto the glory of the triune God, okay? That's a pretty comprehensive, short summary of the gospel. What is the message that we are all about as Christians? It's this, that God reigns and he's fixing the world that we messed up through our sin and he does it through the life, death, and burial, uh, burial and resurrection of Jesus who is the eternal son of God, okay? That is our hope. Uh, and so you'll see several facets there. You see what the gospel is, the good news of the kingdom, how the kingdom is established through Jesus, and then why God establishes it for his glory. God does everything for his glory. So with that in mind, what then is evangelism? Ready? It's simply sharing that message. Now that doesn't mean you have to use those words. That doesn't mean you go up to somebody and you're like, <clears throat> the gospel is the good news of the kingdom. That, that, that would be really weird, okay? But the idea is that you're trying to get those concepts across to a lost and dying world. That is our message. That is our mission. That's the big thing that we're about, okay? We're about Christ and we're about his kingdom. That is what we are about. That's what evangelism is. Now, where does the term evangelism come from? Or its linked word, evangelical, people who are about the evangel, people who are about the gospel. Well, it comes from two Greek words. The first is you, E-U, okay? 
Uh, epsilon, upsilon in Greek. EU, that means good. You ever given, uh, well, I said given. You ever heard or given, depending on your age, a eulogy? What is a eulogy? It's a good logos, a you logos. It's a good word. That's what you're saying at a funeral. You're speaking a good word of somebody. So that word you means good. And then the word angelion means message, okay? An angelos, an angel, is a messenger, and angelion is a message, so the euangelion is the good message, the good news, and the good news is about the kingdom and about Jesus. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is what is the church's role in sharing this good news? What is the church's role when it comes to evangelism? There are three central purposes to Christ's church, okay? There are three central purposes to Christ's church. One is upward, one is inward, and one is outward, okay? The purpose of the church, first of all, is upward, meaning our job is to glorify God. That's why we exist. Every church that exists, every human that's been created has been created with the express purpose of glorifying God, okay? So the church is to be looking upward. We are to give glory to the triune God. We are to honor God. We are to love God. It's all about God. It's not about us. That's the central thing that the church is about, okay? But the church does that through accomplishing a few more things. The next thing that the church is to be about is to be inward, okay? Sometimes we think of being inward as a bad thing, but in this case, we're meaning it in a good way, that we are about discipling the saved, okay? We are about taking those who are already Christians and making them better Christians, okay? Notice that you're never done completing the Great Commission. Even if everybody on earth was a Christian today, which, by the way, they're not, just a spoiler alert, but... If you pretend that they were, the Great Commission would still not be over because part of the Great Commission involves teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, i.e. the Bible. That takes a lifetime, okay? So the church is upward in that we glorify God. We're inward in that we disciple one another. We hold one another accountable. We call one another to sin. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We love one another. We share with one another. But the church also has an outward focus that we are to be about converting the lost, okay? God is so gracious and so kind that he causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Ezekiel 33.11 says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather the wicked should turn from their way and, and live. God's heart is for humanity, okay? God is on our side. Not on the side of this, us when we're lost, God is against us in his wrath, but in his ultimate purposes, God loves saving people. God loves humans. That should be a tremendous encouragement to you, okay? God, God loves when people are saved, when people repent. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who turns in repentance than over 99 who think they don't need repentance is kind of the idea of that text. So, some interesting things to know about evangelism. Here's where it starts to get a little more spicy. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, it is the members of a local church and not the pastor slash elders who bear the primary responsibility of evangelizing the lost, okay? Let me talk about my job and your job, okay? Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, okay? Our job as pastors and elders are to equip you. You're ministers, okay? We believe as Protestants in what is called the priesthood of all believers. I hereby ordain you, okay? You're all ordained as Christians. You're also all saints. You've all now been canonized, okay? It is your job to push back what is evil in a lost and dying world. It is the job of our elders here at Parkway to help equip you do that, okay? That's our job. Our job is to equip you, and your job is to do the stuff. Your job is the primary job to do ministry, okay? Uh, I've had people come up to me, first church that I was in, and a guy came up to me and he goes, Pastor, can you come 
minister and witness to my lost neighbor. I just live next to a guy who's lost. Will you come share the gospel with him? And I said, I'm sorry. Whose neighbor is he? Your neighbor. You share the gospel with him. I'll share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm still called to also be a Christian. I can't just be a pastor. And by the way, being a Christian is way harder than being a pastor. Telling people what to do, super easy. Doing it, super tough, okay? Super tough. So, but notice that that onus is on you. It's your job to share the gospel with the lost. It's your job to disciple people. It's your job to start Bible studies. It's your job to be a Christian, to be salt and light wherever you are. And by the way, you will be able to do evangelism better than somebody who is a vocational pastor always because as soon as people find out I'm a pastor, they get real weird, okay? They start hiding all their rated R movies in their house, kicking them behind the TV and doing all these kind of things. So I've got a guy who lives across the street from me who's not a Christian, and Katie and I said, you know what, we need to live missionally. We need to try to get to know them. So I go over there, and I'm talking to him, and he's like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor at this church you know, down the road. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, did I say any curse words while we were talking? And I'm like, no, I don't think you get what I do, right? And then I was working in my, my lawn, and I went inside, and uh, he said to my wife, he's like, I'm sorry, did your husband go inside because I was playing this music? And I'm like, no, see? So you will always have an opportunity to share the gospel better than me, because people see me as some sort of weird cleric, okay? And so, uh, and so know, though, that that is your job. You are ministers. If you're a Christian, you're, you're kind of a non-vocational pastor. Everyone in here, if you're a Christian, you're a minister. The job of the church is to equip you. Sunday is where you come to be fed and where we work. You work Monday through Saturday, okay? Monday through Saturday is when you are uh, ministering to those uh, around you, okay? Number two, <clears throat> look at this. Some people at least in New Testament times, if not also today, have a unique calling to be evangelists. Let's look at this, Acts 21.8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the what? The evangelist. Notice that he is someone who either does a lot of evangelism or has a gifting of evangelism or something that's going on because he does so much of it, he gets known as uh, Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are different ways that God is equipping his church. He's given the church different people with different gifts to help uh, spread the gospel, to help disciple people, okay? Some of these are offices, the only two enduring offices being uh, elder and deacon. Other of these are kind of roles that people play in, uh, in serving the church. 2 Timothy 4.5, as for you, and here he's talking about Timothy, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, okay? So notice that some people, some of you, might be more equipped for evangelism than others, okay? I've met certain people and I think, man, that guy has the gift of evangelism. So one guy I think of in our church, there'd be several guys, but one guy I think of in particular is uh, a guy named Lance Walker. He will share the gospel with anybody and it doesn't stress him out. And when he shares the gospel with people, they repent and they get converted. I just think he has that gift. And I think several of you probably have that gift, okay? So uh, if you're somebody who's good with people, you're good at chatting with people, you love seeing people saved, you share the gospel with people and it works, you may have this kind of gifting to be an evangelist. Now, here's a spicy thing I'm going to say. You ready for it? The Bible never explicitly says that all Christians are to be evangelists. Now wait, wait before you fire me. I'm gonna come back around and encourage you all to be evangelists. But let me, let me make a point that we haven't thought about a lot. There is not one place in the New Testament where it says that all Christians are to be evangelists. Well, Zach, what about the Great Commission? Huh, what do you do with that? That's given to the church, 
That's not given to individuals. It's not every individual goes to every nation. It's not every individual baptizes. It's not every individual teaches to observe all that I've commanded. It's that the church fulfills the Great Commission. Some people do that by going. Some people do that by leading a community group. Some people do that by being a deacon. Some people do that in a bunch of different ways. Some people baptize, some people whatever, okay? So you can't use the Great Commission. Well, what about where the Bible says to do the work of an evangelist? That's written to Timothy. You're not Timothy, okay? When Isaiah is called to preach the gospel, you're also not Isaiah. Timothy and Isaiah and people who are like apostles and prophets and stuff are special, okay? Well, Zach, what about how we say this? Y'all ever heard this in church? They'll say, people will say this. Not everyone has the gift of evangelism, but everybody is called to be an evangelist. You ever heard somebody say that? Do we do that with any other gift? Do we say, not everyone has the gift of tongues, but everyone should speak in tongues? Not everyone has the gift of teaching, but it doesn't matter. Just get in there and teach somewhere. We do not do that. Why do we make this one weird exception when it comes to evangelism? Now, now that I've said something weird and scary, let me make it even stronger. There is a guy right now who's doing his PhD in New Testament, and his thesis is that Christians, all Christians are to do evangelism. Why would you need to write a thesis on that? Would you have to write a thesis that Paul tells us to love one another, or is that so obvious that that is not worth writing a thesis on, okay? That thesis has to come out because this is not that clear. It's just something we've assumed. Now, now that I've said that, look at me. I think that all Christians should in some way be involved in evangelism. It's because we love people. Part of our command to love people is to share the gospel. Friends don't let friends go to hell, okay? Part of our thing is to share the gospel. Here's what I'm trying to push back on. This idea that every single person in church needs to go out in the streets and ring doorbells and talk to people the very first time they've met them instead of finding the way that God has actually wired you and fulfilling the Great Commission in that role, okay? So yes, be involved in evangelism. Be wise about it. Be shrewd. I want you sharing the gospel. I want you hanging out with lost people. Yes and amen. But what I want to move away from is kind of this cultural you know, evangelicalism that's been going on for decades, which says you need to feel guilty all the time if you're not sharing the gospel with somebody on an elevator the first time you meet them, okay? Notice that God has given some as apostles, not everyone. God has given some as evangelists, not everyone. God has given some as elders, not everyone. Some of you are more gifted and more equipped to do this than others, and that's the way you serve the body. Some of you hate this and are not good at it. I would still encourage you to do it. Fight your fears, be brave but also find the way that God has wired you so you can serve the body in that way. Not everybody is a hand, not everybody is a foot, not everybody is an eye, etc. okay? Number four, here's another spicy thing. Most of church history saw the Great Commission as having been accomplished by the apostles in the book of Acts. Let me give you a great quote from Alistair McGrath, who's a historical theologian that I uh, just have a huge man crush on. The predominant interpretation of the gospel imperative to make disciples of all nations in the 16th century was that the command was addressed to the apostles, not to subsequent generations. It was not until the late 18th century that this view began to be challenged successfully, particularly through the growing influence of missionary societies in England. Now, here's why I tell you this. Multiple times when you're reading the New Testament, and we saw this in the book of Romans, Paul will say, the gospel's gone to the whole world. And you're like, well, wait a second, Paul. I don't know if you know how big the world is, but the gospel has not gone to the whole world. How can he say that? How can he say that the gospel's gone to the whole world, and by the way, he says it multiple times, if not every person has heard the gospel? Because in the mind of a Jew in the first century, the gospel going to the world means that it goes to Gentiles. It means the God of Israel is actually the God of the whole world, and as the gospel goes out, it's mission accomplished. The central theme of the book of Acts is that through the Holy Spirit, the gospel will go from Jerusalem, Judea, 
to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it starts out in Jerusalem, right, with Pentecost. And by the end of the book of Acts, they're all over the world. Mission accomplished. So guys like Calvin and guys like Luther looked at the Great Commission and said, check, next, mission accomplished, okay? Now again, let me be clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. The Great Commission is not fully accomplished yet. In fact, even as Paul's planting churches in these other regions, why is he doing that? So that they can plant more churches, so more people can be discipled, so more people can be saved. We will press on pushing back the gates of hell until every knee has bowed and every mouth has confessed, okay? That's what we will do as Christians. But what I want you to see is that there is a, it's a both and. There is a sense in which the Great Commission is fulfilled in the book of Acts, and there is a sense in which we continue that Great Commission today. We talk about this a lot here at Parkway, that the gospel is already and not yet. It's already in the sense that it's already accomplished in Christ, but it's not yet and that we're waiting for it to be finalized. We're waiting for that final consummation. Jesus has crushed the devil and we're waiting for him to be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus has been resurrected and we're waiting to be resurrected. It's already and not yet and the same thing is true with the Great Commission. There's a sense in which that it's already been accomplished in the book of Acts, but there's a sense in which we continue Acts today. Now, Let's talk about the biggest problems with how we do evangelism today, okay? John Calvin, in the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is one of the best systematic theology textbooks, in my opinion, of all time, says that all of our knowledge pertains to knowledge of God and knowledge of self, okay? If you don't know who God is, you're not going to know a bunch of other stuff. You're not going to know why you were created. You're not going to know what's righteous. You're not going to know how you can be saved, etc. But Calvin goes further and says you also have to have a knowledge of yourself, You have to know your sinful heart. You have to know what it's like to be human. You have to know what it looks like to uh, be one who needs to seek after redemption. You have to know uh, the culture in which you live, et cetera. You have to know both or you're gonna misconstrue the gospel message, okay? What I have found is that a uh, a lot of churches are one or the other. There are some that are really good at knowledge of God. They love God, they have good doctrine, they know God, but they don't know self. They're not really aware of how sinful they are. They don't really know what's going on in culture. And so though they have a good message, they can't get it to anybody because they don't know humanity very well. Conversely, there are other churches that know culture really well. They know it so well that some of them are involved in the same sinful things that culture would be involved in, but they don't know God very well. They don't know Bible very well. So though they're really good at relating to people, though they're very relevant, they have no message to share, okay? And so you want to be neither of those. You want to be both of them combined, minus the sin of the second one, okay? You want to be orthodoxy on fire. You want to be knowledge of God, but also knowledge of culture so that you can get this great message to the culture. The gospel never changes, amen? The gospel never changes. God's true word does not change. His doctrine does not change. His word stands forever and ever. What changes, though, is the packaging that we put the gospel in, okay? So let's say I'm going to give a gift to my son, and I'm going to give a gift to my grandmother, and I want to give them the same gift, okay? I'm going to choose different wrapping paper for each one. For my son, he's going to get some sort of trucks or dinosaurs or something that's going on, and that wrapping paper would not work well with my grandmother. I'm like, here you go, grandmother, and it's like Barney wrapping paper. That's not right, okay? Conversely, I'm not going to give my son this like floral, gold kind of grandma-style wrapping paper for his gift, Okay? Because he likes playing with the paper as much as the toy. So what we have to do as we are involved in different cultures is we keep the present the same. We keep the gospel the same. We keep good doctrine the same. What changes is the wrapping paper in which we put it. Okay? 
the way that you do ministry in China will look very different than in Texas, will look different than in New York City, will look different in sub-Saharan Africa, will look different, etc. okay? So we don't change the message, we don't change doctrine, we don't change the gospel. We figure out how to get that same message, the once for all delivered to the saints gospel, the trustworthy word as taught, and repackage it to different cultures, okay? That's the goal. So a few problems with how we do evangelism today as the church. Number one, we are not good students of culture. We have a tendency sometimes not to be good students of culture, okay? Let me give you an example of evangelism that Paul does in Acts. Remember, when Paul is hanging out with Jews, he's super Jew. He talks about how great his Judaism is, how he's flawless with the law, and he doesn't eat pork sandwiches when he's hanging out with the Jews, and he uses words like oy vey or something like that. When he's hanging out with Jews, he's very Jew, okay? Uh, he didn't speak Yiddish, by the way. That comes later. But uh, anyway, so when he's hanging out with the Jews, he, he speaks Jew. He, uh, he loves the Jews. He acts like the Jews. But look what he does when he ministers to Gentiles. This is in the book of Acts. Acts 17, 22 through 31. This is kind of long, but I think it's worth reading. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay, so he starts by appealing to something that's already common between them. I'm religious and you're religious. Let's keep going. How do you know they're very religious, Paul? Because you circled the wagons and weren't involved in culture and you just sat amongst you and your fellow Jews? No, verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Okay, by the way, this is not God's house. You're God's house. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. By the way, keep that in mind in your evangelism. God uses you because he loves you in reaching lost people. He does not need you. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Four, now look at this next quote. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay? So when Paul is addressing Jews, he uses the Old Testament. He talks in a Jewish way. He's wearing Jewish clothes. He's not eating pork. But when he is addressing the Athenians, he's addressing these Greek philosophers, he has to learn their culture so he can share the gospel with them. Okay? He walks around their marketplaces. He observes their idols. Let me ask you this question. Do you know the idols of our culture today? Do you know what people love more than anything else today? whether it's sex or money or greed or power or whatever it is, are you familiar with the idols today? Because Paul walks around to find out what kind of culture is this. All mankind, uh, er, er, mankind is naturally religious. All men are naturally religious. You can suppress it with atheism, but you're naturally made to be a worshiper. So you'll love something the most. Even an atheist loves something the most, even if it's themselves. And so Paul looks around and says, what is the culture already worshiping? What is the culture, what does the culture already love? What are the idols? Now, notice this, this is important. Notice that Paul's not bowing down to the idol. You can observe culture without giving in to sin. 
Paul doesn't worship at these different temples. He walks around and looks in the temples. He looks at the different statues. He even finds one to an unknown God, right? You got to have that one in case you forgot one. You're worshiping all these gods, but you don't want that one that you forgot to forget, uh, or you don't want to forget about that one God, and then you go on some sea voyage and get killed. So you need to have one that's kind of this token God, this kind of default. In case we forgot about you, we really still love you, mystery God. And so they have those many, that many idols, okay? So notice that he's finding that. Also notice this. This is huge. He's engaged with the media of his day. He quotes here from Epimenides and Aratus, okay? These are uh, pagan poets, which means he's reading pagan literature. Now, let me be clear. He's not reading pornographic pagan literature with pictures. Pornography, by the way, is not a new thing. They used to do that. You've always had pornography. It used to just be drawn, whereas now there's actual uh, pictures and these kind of things. But he's not doing that. He's not worshiping false gods. He's not doing the sinful things of culture. He is studying the writings of culture. He, this, this is the, the YouTube and the Netflix of his day to learn what people are saying, to learn what people already think. He's not giving in to sin. He has to read those things with a Christian mindset. He doesn't get to just read those things passively. As he's reading, he has to say, this is not biblical, this is. This is not good, this is sinful, this is, all, this is okay. And he has to separate what's good from what's bad. And he uses that as a launching pad to then talk about the gospel. I see you're religious. I see you really care about worshiping some God. Let me tell you who the true God is, okay? The true God is not all these gods you worship. It's the one God of Israel, who, by the way, is Trinitarian because he has sent his son, and it is through that son that he will judge the world, okay? He doesn't need you like you think. You cannot make him. You cannot have an image uh, of him because God is unlike creation, and Paul uses that. So the first thing I want you to see, let me ask you this question. Are you a good student of culture? Okay? Here's where it's tricky. Culture has some things that are good and some things that are sinful. You have to not partake in what's sinful, but keep what is good. It's like eating ribs. Okay? Everybody in here like ribs? If you don't like ribs, don't raise your hand because I'll think negatively of you. When you eat ribs, you eat the meat and you leave the bones. Okay? What some would say in culture is just go ahead and eat the bones too. That would be actually partaking in sin. You don't do that. What, conversely, what other Christians say is uh, don't eat the meat at all because there's bones in there. What if you accidentally bite into a bone? You don't want to do that either. That's not what Paul does. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, you want to eat the meat and leave the bones. Culture in and of itself belongs to God. It's the sin that you want to avoid, okay? Culture, music, art, literature, those are good things. But within those things, there's bones spread out. So your job is to eat the meat and to discard the bones. Are you a good student of culture? Because even if you're a really good student of the Bible, if you're not a good student of culture, you won't get the message across. If Paul were to step up in front of Greek philosophers and say, the book of Isaiah, which is this Jewish book that you guys don't believe in, says God is like this, they're just going to dismiss him. He's right, but they're going to dismiss him. So you have to be a good student of culture as well as of the Bible. Again, do not partake in sinful parts of culture. You, you may not look at pornography. You may not do drugs to understand what drug culture is like, whatever it is. But you may read the books, watch the shows, not all of them. Some of them you should not watch, but others you can uh, so that you can know what's going on in culture. Number two, another reason we're not great at evangelism or could be better, I just mean generally as the evangelical church. We do not change our methods based on our audience. We have a tendency not to change our methods based on our audience, okay? The way that I witness to an atheist will be very different than the way that I witness to a Hindu. Who can tell me why? Does the gospel change? 
No? Why does my method have to change if I'm ministering to an atheist or a Hindu? Somebody give me your thoughts. Correct. The, the, the problem if I'm ministering to a Hindu is not that they don't believe that God exists. They believe too many gods exist, millions. So when I say believe in Jesus, they're like, easy. I already worship all these others. I'll just throw him in there with that group and everyone will be happy. Nope, you've misunderstood me. I have to clarify. If you're a Hindu and you want to come to Jesus, you have to deny all your other gods, okay? When I'm talking to an atheist, they don't believe in God at all, so my approach has to be different. I cannot say, dear atheist, do you believe in a million gods? He's going to be like, nope, right? And so you have to change based upon your audience. Notice that Paul does that. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Notice it's about winning people to Christ. It's about evangelism. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Look at this next phrase. Though not uh, being myself under the law. So what he's saying is I act like I'm under the Mosaic law for evangelism, but I'm not actually under it. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. That doesn't mean I can just sin. doesn't mean I can do whatever I want because he says not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. I'm still under the obedience of something, just not the binding jurisdiction of the Mosaic law. Why? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Do you do that? Are you an evangelical chameleon that when you hang out with one type of person, you can interact, and when you hang out with a different type of person, you can interact, okay? Because Paul is. Paul is able to say, it's not about me. I can change the way that I interact with different kinds of people, and you have to be able to do that to be a good evangelist, okay? Now, let me say this. This is going to sound a little bit like I'm, I don't like traditional uh, evangelistic methods, so let me say something very clear here. God has used all kinds of different ways to save people through the gospel, some of you have been given a tract and you read it and that's how you got saved. Some of you got saved by listening to Billy Graham. Some of you got saved because your mom shared the gospel with you. God is gracious and he still uses the gospel message even though sometimes it's not presented in the best way. Amen? Amen. So I'm not trying to say those things are bad. I'm not trying to say those, God doesn't use those things. Okay? What we're trying to say is what is most faithful. The goal is not to hit the bare minimum. The goal is to be faithful. So what does it look like to be the most faithful when it comes to evangelism? You have to adapt your methods based upon your audience, okay? Do you know when evangelism explosion was founded? 1972, okay? It's 2019. So will some people still get saved with that method? Sure, but will that be best as a whole for a culture that has changed its definition of God, changed its definition of sin, changed its definition of repentance, is burned by any type of religion? No, you're going to have to adapt your methods. Number three, look at this one. We think we will fall into sin or our witness will be compromised if we hang out at shady places. I don't know what I mean by that. There are some shady places you should stay away from. Okay? You are not called to witness in a strip club if you are a man. You are not called to do those kind of things. By shady places, I simply mean something like where lost people are. Okay? We think that we will fall into sin or our witness will be compromised if we hang out at shady places or with lost people. Okay? So let me say something to you that maybe you don't understand. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to resist sin. Amen? We have this weird view that if we're around lost people, we then just must fall into sin. We can't say no. We're not really controlled by the Spirit. We're really Arminian. We really just have to try the hardest that we can to, uh, to do this, and it's inevitable that we'll fall. That's not true. Jesus hangs out with lost people all the time for the purposes of mission. 
I want you to corrupt them with the gospel. I don't want them to corrupt you with sin, okay? But we are, we're like these people that have this vaccine of salvation, but we don't give the vaccine to the people who are sick because we're afraid of catching the sinnies. You know what keeps you from catching the sinnies? The vaccine. You don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. Amen? Okay. Let's look at what Jesus does. Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you do that? Well, Zach, if I hang out with lost people, it'll hurt my witness. Good, then you're following Jesus, because it hurt his witness. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. There it is, Zach. We don't have to hang out with all those sexually immoral people. Let's keep reading. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. We have a tendency to not hang out with lost people who are in sin, but to hang out with Christians who are in the same sin, and we've completely reversed this biblical mandate, okay? We've reversed the biblical mandate. Luke 5, 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with shady people? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. John 17, 14 through 15. I have given them your word. This is part of Jesus's high priestly prayer. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look at this next part. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You guys ever seen the movie, and I haven't seen this in a long time. I don't think there's anything bad in it, but uh, watch it before you watch it with your kids by yourself. You ever seen the movie The Village by M. Night Shyamalan? Okay, I don't like all of his stuff. He's kind of weird. But let me tell you the, the premise of this. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Here's the premise of this movie. There's this village, which is kind of this old-school Amish village, and it's surrounded by woods, okay? And nobody in the village ever goes beyond the woods because there are these scary monsters that come out and will hurt you if you try to go beyond the woods. So children are born and families are raised in this little village to keep, the, to keep them in, okay? It turns out that you find out at the end of the movie that a group of professors decided to create this little commune, create trees around it, and they would dress up like monsters anytime somebody got near the woods to scare the people in. They thought that if we can just isolate ourselves, if we can just have a pure community, we'll raise our kids here, they'll be born here, they'll have no experience of the outside world, then we can have a righteous society. But you know what happens in the movie? Somebody in the village murders another person because the problem is not outside of us, the problem is inside of us, okay? Wherever there are people, there are sinners. The problem was not if we can isolate ourselves, then we won't have any problems, the problem still arises. It's a brilliant commentary on uh, total depravity. Number four, two things here, four and five, that, that conflict. Sometimes we're bad evangelists because we think we have to share the whole gospel the very first time we meet somebody. Anybody have that kind of false pressure on your life? You're standing there on an elevator and you think, 
How can I share the entire gospel of the kingdom and get this guy to think like a first century Jew in 30 seconds, right? Why do you have to do that? Because somebody guilted you into doing that? Because some pastor told you you have to do that? Why wouldn't it be better to take that guy out to lunch and get to know him and get to share the gospel later? You don't have to share the whole gospel the very first time you meet somebody. Sometimes you get to. I remember sitting down with a guy one time at lunch and I said something about working at a church preaching the gospel and he's like, what's the gospel? And I was like, yes. Gosh, right? You know, sometimes that happens. But a lot of times that doesn't happen, okay? So don't feel like you have to share the whole gospel the very first time you meet somebody. Conversely, look at number five. We think that we never have to verbally share the gospel and that people will just get saved by seeing our noble behavior. That's not true either. People are not gonna get saved by osmosis, okay? They have to actually hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I think what we do is we err on one of two sides. We either share the gospel too quickly when there's no relationship and it makes it weird, or we just never share it because we're afraid or we just think that someone will see us picking up a piece of trash off the street and be like, I need Jesus because of that guy. I believe that God is a trinity and the second person of that trinity became incarnate while remaining God and died for my sins and was raised. And by simple repentance and faith, I can be saved because that guy is nice to me at work. It's not gonna happen. They're gonna need to hear the message of the gospel. So you neither need to feel like you have to share the whole gospel the first time, nor like you never have to share the gospel. You have to, it'll vary. It'll vary, okay? Number six, we, we use language that doesn't make any sense to lost people. Let me say this in a more convicting way. Many of us don't know the gospel well enough to share it without using jargon, okay? Right, so if you go up to a lost person and you're like, you need to be washed in the blood of the lamb, what does that mean? Okay, if you're lost, that sounds like a weird cult, okay? You can't just use words like justification or steward. I like that one. Only Christians say steward or secular. That's only a word we use, okay? You have to learn to say, how can I share the gospel without using all the jargon? What does it look like to explain to somebody that there is one all-powerful being and we have rebelled against that creator and that's why everything is bad, but God sent his son to save us, to take our penalty, to live the life that we should have lived, so that we might be saved. And we can't earn it. God gets to be the boss because he's already the boss. Conversion is simply us recognizing that, okay? And so can you share the gospel without using all the jargon? Number seven. This one also is convicting. We treat people like projects we are supposed to save instead of just loving lost people, okay? We are commanded to love the lost whether they get saved or not, okay? Now, Part of, again, loving them involves sharing the gospel. Part of loving them, sorry, I got a beard hair in my mouth. <laughs> Tim, just go ahead and edit that out of the recording. That'll be a good, uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, you know, when you have this mane, uh, that's just what happens. Uh, as I was saying, we are commanded to love lost people. Yes, part of loving them is sharing the gospel, but you have to understand, when you treat people like projects, they can pick up on that. We live in a culture that is burned by hypocrisy. We live in a culture that's burned by authority. They don't like authorities. They don't like corporations. They don't like institutions, including the church. They don't like anybody that says this is right and this is wrong. How do I get the gospel across to that person? Here's what you do. You love them. Like Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples because of your excellent systematic theology. That's not what he says. They will know you're my disciples because of your love. Because of your love. If you will simply love lost people, one, you will get a chance to share the gospel with them and it won't be weird. And even if you don't, guess what? You're still being obedient. And even if they don't become a believer, guess what they think of Christians? Christians are great. Christians are great, okay? So 
With all this in mind, I want to pitch to you a different way of doing evangelism as a church than has traditionally been done. Now, when I say traditional, I don't mean in church history. I mean the way a lot of us grew up, okay? Sometimes we confuse those terms. Someone will be like, I want more traditional music. And I'll say, okay, great. We'll, re- we'll uh, sing some sort of Greek Orthodox hymn. And they're like, no, that's not what I meant by traditional. I meant I'll fly away. That's what I wanted to sing, right? <laughs> so let's not define tradition by us, but in this case, we are, okay? So... What I want to do is I want to explain how evangelism has probably been taught to maybe most of you. This is how it was taught to me. I mean, I went to school to study theology, and the evangelism class I took, I did not like, and I do not think that it works for today, okay? So here are some traditional things about evangelism, and what I'm going to pitch to you is instead what I'm going to call a missional way of doing evangelism, missional living. Let me explain the differences between these two methods. First of all, in traditional evangelism, it has a tendency to be event-based. This is the Saturday we're going to go knock on doors, okay? This is the uh, time we're going to go to a college campus and pass out tracts. This is the time, and what we do is we separate evangelism from our day-to-day lives. Evangelism is just something we do occasionally in the traditional model. In the missional model, evangelism is a lifestyle. You're never not doing evangelism. You're always looking to make relationships with people so that you can eventually share the gospel. This means you ask for the same waitress when you go to that restaurant so you can get to know her and encourage her and share the gospel, hopefully. It means that you get to know your barista. It means that you uh, get to know your neighbors. It means that you have your neighbors over for dinner. You're never not doing evangelism with the missional living model. It's not evangelism is something we do four times a year when we go out and do evangelism. Evangelism is not just an event. It is a lifestyle. The second thing is in a traditional model of evangelism, a lot of times there's no relationship. I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody I've just met, somebody I've just knocked on their door, somebody I've just talked to on a subway. Uh, We don't have a lot of those in Texas, but that's for Wade. He's from New York. Uh, Whatever it might be, okay? Instead, the missional approach looks for relationship. So here's what I want to ask you. Of the neighbors that live around you, how many of them have you had over for dinner? That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. Not have them over for dinner and be like, we're going to watch a movie and put in the passion, Don't be weird. If I can give you one good piece of evangelism advice, don't be weird, okay? So instead, is there a relationship? If you will start hanging out with lost people, they will get saved. I've led a few people to Christ, not very many. I'm not very good at evangelism. I don't feel like I have that gift. The few people that I have led to Christ, it has all been through relationship. It has all been through hanging out, talking to them, getting coffee, and eventually I get a chance to share the gospel. That's what actually works. The people I've just run up to and tried to do it, I don't know where they are today. Okay, I don't know where they are today. In traditional evangelism, there's a tendency for, to just give people sound bites. If you were to die today, where would you go? Which is a really scary way to start a conversation, right? Hey, excuse me, sir, if you were to die today and I'm like pulling my gun because you've just threatened me, right? I don't know what that is. If you were to die, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Which, by the way, might involve your martyrdom, so be careful with your theology there. But it's not about sound bites. It's not about just repenting this, doing this, and this. Instead, with missional living, you're trying to give somebody a worldview. There are several people that I've gotten a chance to minister to who aren't Christians, and I just let them see a Christian worldview. We talk about a Christian view of family, a Christian view of politics, a Christian view of salvation, a Christian view of God. And over time, they start to realize, I don't just get Jesus and get to stay in my wrong worldview. When I get Jesus, I have to change my whole worldview. And so it's giving them more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Traditional evangelism plays the short game. In fact, a lot of times it's how quickly can I share the gospel with them? I remember people saying things like, can you share the gospel in 30 seconds? Why would you want to do that? Can you reorient someone's entire worldview in 30 seconds? 
okay? Whereas in missional living, it's a long game. I might try to hang out with my lost neighbor for two years before they finally say yes and come over for dinner. The people that invited me to church when I got saved, I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in high school. The people that invited me to church spent two months inviting me to church and me saying no every time. They had me over to their house. They had me over for a game night with their community group. They took me out to dinner. They just started hanging out with me. I'm a punk high school kid lifting weights in my driveway like some sort of criminal. (laughs) And they are grandparents who live across the street and they just started loving me. And guess what? Here I am, okay? The missional approach, it's a long game. Lastly, in traditional evangelism, we have a tendency to ignore culture, okay? We take the same method that worked 60 years ago and say it will work today, whereas in the missional living method, we study culture. We have to learn, again, not how to change the message, but how to change the wrapping paper that we put the message in. Now, I want to give you some cautions here, okay? I want to give you some cautions here. I want you to be involved in culture like Jesus does. I want you to be in the world but not of it. So I need to give you some warnings. Everybody look at me, okay? Some of you, most of us in here, I think if we grew up in church, err on the side of legalism, so I need to tell you, hang out with lost people. Some of you, though, will take what I've said and be like, Zach said we can party and just do whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Notice that as Jesus hangs out with sinners, wait for it, I gotta build anticipation. He doesn't sin, okay? He doesn't sin. He doesn't get drunk. He doesn't do those kind of things. He walks in righteousness. Again, their job, your job is to corrupt them for righteousness, not the other way around. So let me give you some cautions as you engage culture, and then we'll have old Tim Hollis come up and uh, do a little Q&A. So let me give you some helpful protections, lest you take good things, Christian freedom, and run off into sin. Ask yourself, is what I'm about to do a sin, and or does it violate any commands in Scripture? Okay? Like I said, there are some shady places you should never go to, okay? If you struggle with drug addiction, you are not called to minister to those in drug addiction if you're going to fall into it still. If God has cleaned you and you're not struggling with that, you can do recovery and help other guys out. But if you're currently going to fall into sin and the sin of drug addiction, you should probably stay away from those doing drugs. Number two, is it beneficial to me personally and to the gospel generally? Meaning, am I doing this to be missional? Am I doing this because it's what's best? Number three, will I lose self-control and or be mastered by the thing in which I participate? Okay? Number four, will I be doing this in front of someone who I know will fall into sin because of this activity or location? Okay? Number five, I like this one, is it a violation of the law? Okay? Uh, It's not like to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek, to the bank robber I became a bank robber. Okay? That's not how it works. Number six, if I fail to do this, will I lose an opportunity to share the gospel? There might be a typo there. Will I lose an opportunity to share the gospel? Number seven, can I do this with a clear conscience? Can I do this with a clear conscience? Number eight, am I doing this to help other people or am I being selfish? Am I doing this to help other people or am I being selfish? May God so judge you if you walk in actual sin and try to write that off as being missional. There, I've just cursed you in a biblical sense. Not, not like a cuss word, but a biblical sense. Number nine, can I do this in a way that glorifies God? That's our goal. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all things to the glory of God. Number 10, in what way is legalism hindering me from being around lost people? That's a good question. That's a good question to ask. 
Number 11, am I following the example of Jesus to help save sinners? Tim, make sure your little Mikey thing is on and come up here with a few Q&A questions. By the way, thanks for putting up with my nonsense. I found out uh, at 1 in the morning on Saturday that I'd be preaching, so uh, I'm a little tired. So just uh, give me grace today when I say things you don't like. Sleepy, Zach. Oh, there I am. There you are. Is that loud enough? We'll, We'll make it work, okay? I think my beard is like muffling it. See? We're both having beard issues <laughs> Yeah, it's today. hard. It's a hard day. Okay. Okay. Uh, we had not a ton of questions. I thought we were going to get a ton of questions on this one, but that's okay. It's okay. Uh, y'all can just always send it in. If we don't get to your question, just send it into the email address up there. The first one, I'll say something about this, and then I'll pass it over to you, Zachary, so you can get a little water break. Uh, you said that the command do the work of an evangelist is written to Timothy specifically. Does that mean that all direct commands in like Timothy or Titus do not apply to me? Uh, so first off, I, I think sometimes there's a, there's a temptation for us to want to simplify everything and not really study the nuance. So Zach says, hey, you need to hang out with lost people. You're like, let's go get drunk. He's, he told me to go get drunk. No, no, no. He didn't say that. He said, go hang out with lost people, be culturally literate somewhat, but that's not, that's not saying dive all in. That's not saying eat the bones as well. We don't typically like nuance, including when we study our Bibles. We want to just read something and say, I need to take all of these commands literally for myself, or I need to take none of these commands directly for myself. And we don't do that. You have to actually look. Here's a, here's a great command that's given to Timothy, and you answer this question whether or not you should take this directly. Greet Pris- Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onis. Phoris, Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus. Do your best to come before winter. Make sure you come before winter. That's a, that's a command given to Timothy. So do you think we, we take that command directly that's given directly to Timothy? Do your best to come before winter and also greet Prisca and Aquila. Obviously not. We, we study our text and we recognize that that's directly something given to Timothy. But if there's an implication that we can gain from a command given to Timothy, like if, he, if Paul were to command Timothy to love his wife, if Timothy was married, then that's a command for Timothy. But we get an implication from that text and that command that, oh, that's something that we ought to do as well. Does that make sense? So I'll let uh, Zach kind of expand more on that. I, I think that's really good. So <clears throat> here, here's an easy way to think about it. All of the Bible is written for us. It's not written directly to us. It's written directly to the church at Rome or Corinth or Timothy or whatever. And it applies to us, though, because we are in the same situation. We are Christians, okay? So when it's written to the church at Rome, we're a church in McKinney, and those things apply directly to us. There are some things, though, that are just for that particular instance. So when Jesus tells the disciples, don't take extra sandals with you, that doesn't mean if you go on a mission trip, you can't take an extra pair of shoes, okay? So what you're going to have to distinguish is what is a command just given to them versus what is a command also given to me, okay? So when, uh, I think Tim's example is good, so when he tells them to make sure you try to come before winter, we don't think, I have no idea how to apply that. We realize that just is for Timothy. But when Timothy is told to love God, we say, wait a second, that's something true of all Christians. What I'm saying is that command to do the work of an evangelist, I think is specifically for Timothy. I think that's similar to a command for him to be over his local church. And so yes, again, again, I'm telling you, you should all do evangelism, What I'm trying to get rid of is that false cultural guilt, which you might have grown up in, that says, if you're not always doing evangelism, God is always mad at you. That's what I'm trying to get rid of, okay? So, that's good. That's a great question. I think that's a very fair question. Numero doso. Uh, How do we be cultural chameleons without coming across as fake or not genuine or something? Just You go go ahead, sociology guy. You want me to go first? (laughs) Yes. Okay, okay. (laughs) 
What does it mean to be real? Let me ask that question, because that's what people want. Not really. May your life always be as happy as you pretend it is on Facebook. We don't really, but we want at least people to think that we're being real, right? And so here's how we have a tendency to define real and authentic in our culture versus fake. People define real based on how they feel. That's what it means to be real, okay? I don't feel like reading my Bible today, so I'm not going to, because that wouldn't be real or authentic. I don't feel like staying faithful to my spouse because that doesn't feel real or authentic. I think I'm going to identify as a different gender because this one doesn't feel real or whatever. What I'm saying is your feelings don't determine reality. The Bible determines reality. So when God commands you to find your identity in being a Christian, and a Christian is somebody who changes their tactics to win people for Christ, that is the most real thing you can do. This whole idea of, well, I don't really like what this person's you know, hobbies are, so I'm not going to you know, like that with them, that's actually being fake. So what happens is we think that we're being fake when we change who we are to reach people. The only reason we think that is because we started with the wrong definition of what it is to be real. The definition to be real is not what you actually most like or how you feel. It's what God says about you. And so I think when you realize that God says that you're his child, you've been adopted, that's your identity, there is nothing, you know, in that, nothing that's contradictory about having that as your identity and changing your tactics with who you hang out with. The way that I will talk to a six-year-old is different than the way that I will talk to a little old lady, which is different than the way that I'll talk to a teenager, which is different than the way I'll talk to someone from another country. I will change my tactics. That's not me being fake. That's me being real because what's most real is my identity in Christ. Okay. Other thoughts? That's great. That's great. Uh, just one more question, okay? Uh, can you talk, and I, I feel like we've talked a lot about this, and uh, so I know you'll be excited to answer this question. But uh, we've also talked a lot about uh, an answer for this question. Can you talk about the idea of sharing the gospel with someone, evangelizing, talk about how that squares with the, doc- the doctrine of predestination, God's sovereignty and salvation? Yeah. So as, as simply as I can do it, and this question comes up a lot. When God ordains something, he ordains the entire series of events that happen up until that point. God doesn't just ordain the end. He ordains the means, okay? We've never said, and the Calvinistic and Reformed position has never been, God just ordains this ends and doesn't use any means to get there, okay? Uh, If nothing else, God is the means to get that thing there, okay? And so what you need to understand is this. This is as simple as I can make it. God has ordained for me to eat buffalo wings tonight. I don't know that, but I think that's true because that's probably what's going to happen, okay? Going to Wingstop and getting buffalo wings is what God has ordained. Now, just because God has ordained it, does that mean those wings will fall into my lap? No, because notice, if God's ordained the eating of the wings, he's ordained me fighting with my wife about it because she hates wings, and then he's ordained me getting in the car and driving there, and then he's ordained me spending money, and then I get to eat the wings. He doesn't ever just ordain the wings. He ordains A, B, C, D, E, F, G until we get to the Z of the wings, okay? So God has not ordained to just teleport the gospel into the minds of the elect. God has ordained you to go talk to people and you don't know whether they're elect, but you will after they believe, okay? And so that's the way that God has ordained to do it. He doesn't just ordain the goal. He ordains the way to get up to that goal and the way that God has ordained to save lost people is through us evangelizing, through us preaching the message. The way that God has ordained to heal people is through our prayer, okay? Same thing is true of prayer that's true of evangelism with God's sovereignty. God has already ordained it, but we don't get to see what he's ordained, so we only get to see it looking back. I share the gospel with somebody because I'm commanded to. If they repent, I look back and say, that person was elect. If they don't repent and then they continue in sin and then die, I look back and say, that person was probably not elect, okay? But I only get to see it in retrospect. God has always seen it in 
future specs, whatever it is, okay? All right. The, the difficulty with that is that uh, what we forget is we have this idea that if God's predestined everything, well, then there's, there's just no reason to evangelize. But if he, has, if he is the one who's sovereign over all of that, what would we be doing if we thought, uh, if we had, for example, the Arminian view of evangelism, we're thinking that God will not control someone's free will. So then what are we doing when we pray for them? Lord, I pray that you would well, do nothing because he's not going to influence them in any way. That would be the thought. So instead, we have all the more reason to pray for someone, to be sharing the gospel with someone, because we know that we're praying to the only one who has the power to change that person's heart. Yeah, I have no... So you hear this, you hear this a lot from people. <clears throat> they think that Reformed theology hinders evangelism. Okay, you ever heard somebody say that? Calvinism hinders evangelism. Not only is that not true historically, the Great Awakening is all led by these Calvinistic guys, and the fastest-growing churches in America are all Calvinistic, but... That's also not true biblically. I would push that back and say, if people are dead in their sin and it's up to you to persuade them to choose Jesus, even though God is not overcoming their will, why would you evangelize at all? I think Arminianism hinders evangelism. There is the chance that you will go out and never see somebody saved because you didn't share the gospel good enough. With a Calvinist, you share the gospel and then it's up to God to change their heart. You go home and sleep like a Calvinist and you don't have to worry about it. You've been faithful. The Arminian has to think, I should have said this. If I could have just been more rhetorical, if I could have made a better logical point, oh, if I could have remembered that scripture, then I could have gotten this person to will themselves to choose Christ. That's ridiculous. To be an Arminian and share the gospel is like going to a cemetery today and telling people to wake up. Do it as hard as you want. Good luck. Have fun. But if you realize that it's God who raises, it's God who changes the heart, it's God who overcomes our will, then all of a sudden, near evangelism now is a lot of fun. The reason I'm teaching you this missional living style, I, I hate doing evangelism. My whole life I've been terrified of it and felt condemned about it. When I finally learned this, it made it fun. It made it to where I could just love lost people, and if I didn't get a share, that's fine. If I got to share, fine. I got to see more people saved. I didn't have to stress out because I realized God is the one doing the saving. It made something that I was terrified of and hated something that now I actually kind of enjoy, okay? So that's my hope for you in that. Tim, pray for us, and then we Let's will pray. go hear more, more of this nonsense. More, and, yeah, uh, all, more Zach, okay? <laughs> so y'all get a lot of coffee in between the break. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are indeed sovereign, that you are the one who uh, changes the hearts of men, and uh, we thank you that uh, you have changed our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we now hear your word proclaimed, Lord, that it would be a joy to hear. You would transform us uh, by the power of uh, your spirit, and Lord, that you would be uh, glorified. Uh, our goal, Lord, is to make disciples uh, for your kingdom. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, you would make this happen. Lord, that you would strengthen us, you would encourage us where we're downcast, Lord. You would lift up our heads, and our hope would be in you. Uh, I pray we wouldn't be fake happy, pretending everything's okay, but we would, be, uh, we would indeed be real, and indeed uh, recognize the, the hope given to us in the resurrection uh, that is coming. It's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen.